Wednesday Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong peoples of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders, past, present and emerging, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Hello, it is the 4th of November and you're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. In the studio we have Rob and... Myself, Eidwin. How are we? We are good. We are living the high life. Melbourne is feeling the joy of ease restrictions. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know about you, it's just a joy to see people cautious, but moving around. And, you know, I've seen a lot of like just young people standing around in their masks, like just chatting with friends. And it's such a nice feeling to have that like, oh, valued friendship and relationships kind of reemerge. So it's been a good week. It's just been really lovely seeing a city kind of become more alive and there's a sense of an energy. And it's just, it's so nice to have that because that's what city, that's what makes cities so great. And it's been so absent for so long and it's, it's quite nourishing. It's a really nourishing kind of feeling. So it is. And moving away from this, like um, one person, you know, the bubble household thing, it's lovely to go uh, again, cautiously, but go see people. You know, I've seen, I got to see my dad in the, like four months. It's been four Uh, months. So it's just been one of those wonderful things of like, oh, we can now enjoy our hard work. Mm, absolutely. And I'm, I'm hoping hopefully you know, borders over time might open and then we can really, you know, explore some other parts of Australia and <laughs> support local business and all that kind of stuff. So mm. I think it'll be quite a nice summer. But yeah, how's, what have you been up to this week? What have you been mm. researching? Well, I've got a rather interesting little thing that I've been kind of delving into. And I think everyone should as an extension. (laughs) Uh, Unfortunately, the 3CR listeners, you can't actually see this right now. um, But Rob will see in the background of my my house is a picture of like um, a rubber painting, a rubber drawing. Oh, yeah. Right. Or rubbing, I should say, of a bronze statue. And this statue has been in my house since I can remember, since birth, whatever. But no one actually told me it was actually a family member. (laughs) So I've discovered, yeah, over the last week or so that, um, yeah, this brass rubbing of this 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 very um, Stuart-dressed knight is actually someone who was in our family known um, as Thomas Gage and that my nana actually did the rubbing when she was in a honeymoon in England and had done a whole family tree and whatnot. So I've been diving into um, basically, yeah, ancestry and family crests and our family crests that belonged to this guy is really odd. It's really been fun to look at just how strange family crests are in general. Mm-hmm. They've always got symbols. Um, you know, ours has got like this weird, like black sun, but it looks more like um, like a dust mite. It's it's just really strange. And are you um, able to find any information on what the different symbols mean? that's what this week is all about. So that's definitely where I'm going with this idea and what I extend to 3CR listeners I have decided that not only should I learn the history of this crest, but also as a family, we should create our own new crest. 
So you're so, going to have hoodies as you walk down the streets and you're matching crests. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I just, it's going to be our Christmas project this year. We're going to make a crest. Um, our house has been, is always known as wormhole. That's what we've always called it. So we know that there has to be a worm on there. There has to be some space motifs. I honestly say, go, go nuts. Um, so yeah, that's been my research part of the week looking at old crests and starting to figure out how to make new crests. Who knows? Funny. I might bring it up on a tram thoughts, like make your own crest step by step. <laughs> Funny you mentioned those sort of weird things that you find in the house, then you realize something really interesting about them. So my parents who live in Sydney when I was living there a few years ago, they collected this sort of oh, like raw iron sort of sculpture thing. that's maybe, you know, 20 centimeters tall, looks just kind of like a sort of like holding case for something. And they got it at like a market for you know forty dollars or something quite cheap, secondhand market. And it looked kind of interesting. Anyway, mm-hmm. one day someone came over to the house, was like, "Oh, you know, this is from um, like BC two thousand Chinese history." And we're like, "What?" And then we took it out of its place and like got a museum, st- put it under like a light, like a museum style sort of exhibition. You're like, "Yeah." This really could look like it could go in a museum, but we had no idea. And it's a thing that's, you know, thousands of years old, we think, potentially. And we just picked it up at a market for $40. So it's amazing to think of the history behind these everyday objects that you just sort of pick up. It really is. It really is. It brings a whole new layer of enjoyment to your house where you're like, what, what, what's the significance of this? Exactly. (laughs) There was one time I picked up a, a secondhand bed frame. And the owner was saying, was like, oh, yeah, this bed frame was made by the lead guitarist from the Skyhawks or something like that. So Skyhawks? <laughs> Skyhawks, sorry. Skyhawks. I, um, that makes me so envious. I'm actually <laughs> a little bit bummed out about that. <laughs> but yeah, fascinating what we find inside our homes. Um, but yeah, speaking of the show, what have we got coming up today, I think? So my interview today is actually with Dr. Patricia Ronald who we've had on before. She's from the Australia Fair Trade and Investment Network. Now this organization, it's, it's one of those sort of small organizations you don't necessarily hear from a lot, but what they do is they analyze um, trade relations internationally and also Australia and the effects of these trade relations. Um, And they've got a lot of criticisms that are really, really interesting and really important and a lot of stories that you just don't hear. And that's the case with today. So we'll be talking to Patricia about investor state dispute settlements Mm. which are clauses within free trade agreements which allow multinational corporations to sue um, a country if there is a perceived loss in that country and we'll be applying this from basically extending this from patricia's uh, article which was recently in michael west media but also um, what's going on currently with the Papua new guinean government which is um uh a mining company is suing png because png has cancelled their license of opera or, or decided not to renew their license to operate uh and that's due to the mines you know historical um environmental and human rights abuses but the mining company now which is barrack gold one of the biggest mining companies in the world owned by a canadian organization um is kicking up a fuss and now yeah trying to sue png for it so we're going to be diving into this quite complex, a little bit jargony, but trade story. And that should be really interesting. I've split it into two parts to really get the detail because the detail is important in this one. And then after then, we've got an interview, very excitingly, with the NGV. They're doing a new exhibit coming out in December 2021, so it's just over a year away, called NGV Queer. And so it's this amazing exhibit where they've gone through their collection 
and they've found, or they've sort of sourced about 300 pieces of artwork, all from their existing NGV collection, but are now viewing it through a queer lens and perspective. Mm. And so I'll be speaking with the curators about that. And as part of this exhibit, they've been saying that they've really started to understand where there are gaps in the NGV collection, like where there are stories that aren't told or where there are sort of moments of history where art wasn't collected as much for certain topics. And so it's almost like it's quite an interesting meta reflection on the NGV's process of collecting and acquiring art as well. Uh, It's going to be a fascinating interview because it's so far in the future. So it's not like we're necessarily promoting the event quite yet, but we're getting to see all the behind the scenes and um, creation of such an event. And so I was speaking with them before the interview and they were saying it takes four to five years to curate one of these shows. So this show, the genesis of the idea was around the 2017 plebiscite. So since then they've been working on this exhibition and obviously it's still a work in progress and the majority of the work is done, but yeah, incredible amount of time that goes into making these exhibits. Mm, Cool. I'm very excited for that one. Um, For now, we will be jumping into some alternative news though. Some folks know about it, some don't. Some will learn to shout it, some won't. But sooner or later, baby, here's a ditty. Say you're gonna have to get right down to the real nitty gritty. Let's get right down to the real nitty gritty now. One, two, nitty gritty now, yeah, boom. Nitty gritty, who we? Right down. You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, moving into some alternative news. So this is some exciting urbanist news out of Bangkok. So the last Saturday was World Cities Day, and so this is a story related to that. But in Bangkok, there's been a plan to put in action to uh, to revive some of Bangkok's decaying canals to help ease traffic congestion and create a more livable city. So in Bangkok, the canals are actually one of the key transport routes through the city, transporting around 30,000 people a day out of the 8 million people population. And the canals are seen as a much cheaper and faster way to commute. However, they've become very fetid and smell very unpleasant, so they're not as popular as they could be at the moment. But in order to address that, well, I should say before that, Bangkok is actually also a city that's been built on a floodplain and today has a very large network of canals, also known as Klongs. And so this network structures hundreds of kilometres, helps connect temples, homes, public spaces, and is also a transport route for goods and services. But it also acts as a place for floating markets as well. Yet from the 20th century, many of the canals were built over for roads instead, and then others were then filled with trash and sewerage. Today, Bangkok is now one of the most congested cities in the world. And so there's this plan, which is to restore some of the canals and clean them up and also start to introduce electric ferries through the canals in order to ease congestion as well as help make the city more livable. Um, And in essence, the city is also starting to create the canals, which have been typically seen as an eyesore, into now one of the city's great assets. I guess looking at the context of urban history around the world, 
many cities have been developed on watercourses with rivers and canals as key transport routes. Yet over time, cars and the sort of focus on cars has really left these assets very underused and very much just abused with, with rubbish and waste. However, there has been a really significant global movement in the last few decades to start to restore these water bodies to make them more ecologically diverse, healthy, and also make them useful routes for transport. And so water bodies also actually play a really important role in urban cooling uh, in relation to climate change through evaporative cooling as well. So it's a very significant movement for Bangkok. And it's also quite important because it's forecast that Bangkok will be one of the city's hardest hit by warmer temperatures, with a forecast that around 40% of the city will be inundated by 2030 due to extreme rainfall, compounded with the fact that the city is also sinking two centimetres a year. So as a result, canals actually play a really important part of flood mitigation and drainage. And so that's another key focus of this project as well. And just another little interesting thing, which I didn't realise, is that so currently canals take up 8% of Bangkok's area, while streets only cover 7%. So there's actually a very wow. significant amount of canals. And 75% of these are currently inaccessible, but over time through the sort of upgrading connecting, it's going to help create a really expansive and well-connected canal system. So that's some pretty exciting news. That's pretty funky. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was really great. Mm. Social Change Library is an online collection of educational resources for those campaigning for social change. It collects, curates and distributes the key lessons and resources of progressive movements around Australia and across the globe. The library includes over 500 resources covering campaign strategy, community organising, activist history, digital campaigning, diversity and inclusion and much, much more. During October, the Commons Library is running a crowdfunder to help keep its collection updated and free to the public. 
To make a tax-deductible donation, visit www.commonslibrary.org. Commons Social Change Library is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR. Next up, we are talking with Dr. Patricia Ronald from the University of Sydney and from the Australian Fair Trade and Investment Network. She's going to be discussing the growing trend of multinational corporations suing developing countries through free trade mechanisms known as investor state dispute settlement claims. Patricia has recently written an article for Michael West Media, which I will have linked to today's rundown. And um, for today's conversation, we're going to break it into two parts. The main focus of the story, which is what's currently happening in Papua New Guinea, and then widening that out to more so this dispute settlement more generally. So hello, Patricia. Hello. So I wanted to start the story, uh, as you do in, in the article, with the Progrera gold mine located in Papua New Guinea and owned by Canadian company Barrack Gold. The Progrera mine has been historically controversial for violating environmental and human rights. And of this year, it lost its application for a license renewal from the Papua New Guinean government. Now the company is suing PNG. Could you tell us a little bit about how this case has been established? Yes, well... Barrick Gold, the Canadian company, is a very large global company and is actually based in Canada. Mm. But in order to use this special mechanism to sue the PNG government, it's had to use an Australian subsidiary called Barrick Gold Australia. And it's had to do that because Canada does not have an investment agreement with PNG. Mm. Um, So Australia has kind of got dragged into it, if you like, because... um, they've been able to use an Australian subsidiary which can then say we're an Australian company and we're suing you on the, under the terms of this agreement between Australia and PNG. Now, the thing about this mine is that it's been um, going for over 20 years and there have been several investigations by Amnesty International and by independent human rights experts which have established that it has a terrible record of human rights abuses, both treatment of people and pollution of the environment. And that is basically why the PNG government has refused to renew its licence. So the PNG government, in my view, has acted reasonably in Mm. this refusal. But under the terms of this agreement, they can use investor state dispute settlement, that is a complaint by an investor against the state, Mm. to claim billions of dollars in compensation. And Barrick Gold has been involved in other cases where it's not only claimed for the value of what it's actually invested, but for the value of what they call future lost profits. And these claims are, are heard by international tribunals. They're not heard by national courts. And the tribunals don't have independent judges. They, are, 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 they use investment lawyers who remain practising advocates, often representing a company one month and then sitting on a tribunal the next month. Yeah. Um, they also don't have precedents mm-hmm. or appeals. Now, in, in the court system of in Australia, if you become a judge, you can't keep practising as a lawyer and uh, courts have to take notice of other decisions, precedents, and your decision can be appealed 
if it's inconsistent with other decisions outside the sort of parameters of reasonable legal decision making. But these tribunals don't have any of that. So they can make inconsistent decisions and they can make awards which are literally billions of dollars against developing countries, which are really crippling um, in terms of their budgets. And touching on this investor state dispute settlement, these usually are packaged in free trade or bilateral trade agreements between countries. What's their purpose? What's more broadly their use or their rationale? Well, the rationale is that they have been lobbied for by um, global companies And what they argue is that it gives them greater security to have additional legal rights, um, especially in developing countries. They are very much aimed at developing countries, although some of them also apply to countries like Australia, as we'll hear when we talk about other examples. But basically, um, a trade agreement is usually an agreement about how you treat trade in products or goods and services. But some trade agreements, only some, have this extra set of clauses called investor state disputes or ISDS, and they give an additional legal right to a single investor to be able to sue a government for compensation or damages if they can argue that their investment has been harmed. Mm. The whole framework is very lopsided because The tribunals, which I've described, which are not really judicial tribunals, they're very much set up in in terms of investment law. Um, They look at whether the investment has been harmed or reduced in value rather than whether the law was justified or not or the law or policy was justified. And also um, um, there's no... Um, obligation on the investor to actually abide by any standards about the environment or human rights or um, land rights or any other um, standard which we would include in the general rubric of human rights and environmental protections. So it's very much an investor right to sue if their investment, they can argue the value of their investment has been reduced and it doesn't take sufficient account of whether the actual law or policy um, is justified in terms of human rights or other public policy issues. So it's a fair summary to then say that these um, these ISDS for short, these investor state dispute settlements, really remove sovereignty and give a lot more power, a lot more ability to private companies investing in, in overseas. Would that be fair to say? Well, they certainly are a threat, I think, to the right of governments to have regulation. And in that sense, they are a threat to sovereignty because um, what happens uh, in the the process, if you have one of these clauses in a trade agreement, there can also be a freezing effect because when a government prepares to introduce a law, and this happened in Australia with our plain packaging legislation, Mm -hmm. uh, the tobacco company said at that point when the law was being prepared, if you do this, we will sue you. Um, And um, that can have a freezing effect um, on legislation. So it's not only the actual... Um, cases that are taken it's also the potential um, yeah that coercive sort of threat almost yeah touching on this another um aspect that feeds into the story with Papua New Guinea or or this case I should say is the 
um, term forum shopping. Could you explain this legal, I suppose, manoeuvring and how it applies to, you know, PNG? Yes. Well, um, as I said, the Canadian, the Barrett Gold is actually a global Canadian-based company, Mm. but it has an Australian subsidiary. And um, so they've chosen to use that Australian subsidiary to, um, as the vehicle for uh, suing PNG because Canada does not have an agreement with PNG that would enable Canada to sue PNG. But Australia does have an investment agreement with PNG, which has this ISDS clauses in it. And so um, it's very interesting. Uh, this idea about forum shopping um, is actually promoted. There's a whole industry of very well-paid lawyers who actually um, work for companies running these disputes and um, they give advice to their clients saying, when you are setting up a major investment, it is a good idea to set up some subsidiaries (laughs) Based in other countries, if you don't happen to already have and or if your country doesn't have an investment agreement with that country that you want to invest in, it, it would be prudent to have some subsidiaries which would enable you to do this in the event that you should want to sue the government of the country that you're investing in. Now, our argument is that um, these sorts of things give enormous additional legal power to companies that already have enormous market power Mm. and they're an extra add-on to trade agreements which is just not needed except to give companies more power all trade agreements have a separate dispute mechanism to deal with everything else like you know tariffs and Mm. and other matters in trade agreements which is a government to government dispute process which is an entirely different process and that's the kind of process that's used in the world trade organization and so on the these investor state dispute um, uh, arrangements uh, have only been used in bilateral agreements mostly with developing countries and more recently in some broader trade agreements but they're not used in all trade agreements for example uh, the current negotiations between the EU and Australia, it's not in there. Mm. Um, and um, there's another large uh, agreement in the Asia-Pacific, which Australia is negotiating. It's about to be signed, actually, with Australia, New Zealand, China, um, South Korea, Japan and the 10 ASEAN countries. That doesn't have into mm. ISD it either so it's it's not a necessary component of a trade agreement it's there because it's been lobbied for by By global corporations jump to that in just a moment but I just wanted to kind of expand a bit on this idea of forum shopping and the use of an Australian subsidiary to force through the case. Um, Historically in your article you draw on the example of um, Philip Morris attempting to sue the Australian government over plain packaging laws and using its Hong Kong subsidiary as a forum shop to push the case let's say. 
Uh, this rested on the precedent, as you said before, of Hong Kong having ISDS in its free trade, free trade agreement with Australia. Um, but the case ended up losing due to it being decided that the company was ultimately American. And so, you know, it was a bit of a mute point. Well, they decided it wasn't a Hong Kong company. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Could the same thing happen here where it's kind of like um, the Canadian company using an Australian subsidiary could get called out? We, could we see a similar thing happen here? Well, certainly, I think that's what the PNG government might argue. But the problem is because the tribunals um, don't have to abide by precedent, in other words, they don't have to make the same decision that the Hong Kong tribunal made, and there's no appeals, there's no guarantee that that'll happen. So the PNG government will have to have to go to the tribunal and spend millions of dollars in legal fees arguing that the company is not really an Australian company, it's a Canadian company, and there's no guarantee that it will win. For example, one of the reasons why Australia won the Philip Morris case was that Philip Morris actually transferred its assets to Hong Kong after um, it had, um, after the legislation had been introduced in Australia. The law hadn't actually been passed, but it was, a, uh, so it was pretty hard for it to argue that, right. um, you know, it had a genuine investment in Hong Kong. Um, it may be that the PNG investment has been for a longer period. They might argue that it's um, that it's had more genuine involvement in PNG. Um, there's all sorts of, of of legal arguments that could be put, and because there's there's no precedents and no appeals, tribunals often make quite inconsistent decisions, even on similar facts. So that's one of the problems with these tribunals. And, I and the government would still have to spend the millions defending mm. it. In the Australian case, it took five years for the tribunal to decide that Philip Morris was not a Hong Kong company. Mm. Um, so, um, and that that cost the Australian government $24, $24 million in legal fees, and they only got half of it back. But that's a lot of money for a country like PNG. I mean, the other terrible example that happened last year was the Tethian um, Australian Tethian Company, um, which is also an example which which involves Barrick Gold, the Canadian <laughs> company, um, who had an investment in Pakistan and um, had a dispute with the Pakistan government over a licensing issue and sued Pakistan. Um, in, the case started in 2012. It was only decided in 2019. It used an Australian subsidiary to sue Pakistan because Canada didn't have an agreement with Pakistan, but Australia did. And that Australian subsidiary was awarded $5.8 billion dollars. Now, Pakistan was actually experiencing an economic crisis at the time and it had just been awarded an IMF emergency loan to repair its budget to pay for health and education of $6 billion. So the $5.8 billion award against Pakistan cancelled out almost the um, potentially beneficial effects of the loan that it had got from the IMF. And that was another example of the same company, actually, mm. Eric Gold, using an, an Australian forum shopping with an Australian subsidiary because Australia had, a, had an agreement with Pakistan, but Canada did not. 
really sets a deeply worrying precedent of where this case is going to go. We're going to wrap up this part of the conversation quickly in a moment. But last time we actually had you on, we were discussing the PACER agreement, a free trade agreement, but made between Australia and some of its closest neighbours. And it was critiqued at the time for being lopsided. I remember having you on and saying, you know, this is a trade agreement that favours hugely Australia. I just wanted to get your look at basically, you know, PNG was one of the many states who refused to sign it and heavily criticised the PACER agreement. How does this new case kind of compound our regional relationships with PNG? Well, luckily, because of a lot of lobbying by um, community organisations in the Pacific Islands, as well as in Australia and New Zealand, that particular agreement does not have ISDS in it. So both of those, the largest two Pacific Island nations, Papua New Guinea and Fiji, said no to that agreement. Now, um, Australia has since been worried about its relationships with the Pacific Islands, partly because of competition with China. Mm. And I certainly think that um, an Australian company being used to forum shop to sue the PNG government for potentially billions of dollars is not going to improve Australia's relationship with Papua New Guinea or make PNG think it might be a good idea in the future to have um, more trade and investment agreements with Australia. We do have a bilateral investment agreement with PNG, but and it does have this ISDS clause in it. Yeah, but it's it's, it's an old agreement from um, twenty years ago. All right. Well, we'll be back for part two in just a moment and we'll be speaking about ISDS, I'm going to say it for short, more broadly. We'll be back in a moment. I'm speaking with Patricia Ronald from the Australian Fair Trade and Investment Network and we're discussing ISDS, also known as Investor State Dispute Settlements. Uh, this is when multinational corporations are able to take legal actions on countries for compensation over perceived losses. Uh, we were Earlier on, we were speaking about this in application to the Papua New Guinean government, uh, which is currently underway. However, this has been done time and time again around the world. And that's what I kind of want to get this second part of the conversation to discuss. So Patricia, you've just discussed uh, Pakistan and ISDS being used in Pakistan with devastating results. I wanted to get your thoughts also on like what the effect has on these countries and the idea of the fact that these are usually used against developing countries in particular. Uh, another case you mentioned in your article is Thailand. What what sort of effects do we see yeah, on the country? Well, I should mention, first of all, that um, the way ISDS works is that you you can only, the, the company can only take action if there's a change in law or policy. So there has to be an action by the government against which they can claim compensation um, and for which they can argue that they've suffered harm to their investment. So there has to be some kind of action by governments, but that can be a decision about a licence or um, it might be um, a a decision about health policy or the environment or whatever. But basically, if you look at the history of how these claims arose in the first place, they developed in the context of after World War II, when a lot of um, governments which had been colonies of um, industrialised countries, colonies of Britain or um, the the, um, European countries, or in some cases the US, um, became independent and some of them nationalised or actually took the assets back of um, uh, 
that that had been owned by foreign corporations. The most fa- famous example is Egypt nationalised the Suez Canal in 1956. Gotcha. And... Um, uh, they developed a set of rules through these investment tribunals which said that um, if a government actually took the assets of a company, then the company was entitled to some compensation for what's called direct expropriation or taking of assets. Um, So um, what happened was that a number of the industrialised countries developed these bilateral investment treaties with newly independent developing countries to protect um, companies from having or or to create some rules around what happened if things were nationalised. But what then happened was that the tribunals themselves developed these new legal concepts of things like indirect expropriation or fair and equitable treatment. Now, these are concepts which don't exist in Australian law, for example, but they exist in international investment law. Indirect expropriation really means that if the government does something, takes an action which reduces the value of your investment, um, it's like taking your investment. (laughs) And so you can claim compensation for it. But in reality, it's not like taking your investment. It's... Mm. it's, um, from the point of view of government, the law or policy might be reasonable. Um, So if we look at the Thai example, that's another interesting example where there's an Australian company um, in this time, this isn't foreign shopping, just an Australian company, Kingsgate, that had a direct investment in a gold mine in Thailand. Um, um, There were health impacts on the population. Um, Gold mining actually uses a number of toxic minerals like arsenic and manganese to refine the gold when it comes out of the ground. And um, there were heightened levels of these toxic substances found in people's blood around the mine and there were health impacts. And so the Thai government, when the licence came up for renewal, said, no, we're not going to renew the licence. That was the action of the Thai government until we establish whether in fact people's health is being affected and what are the safe levels if you like um, for these things to be operating at and um, in that case um, the the, there was a long sort of negotiation with the Thai government but last year the Australian company decided to sue the Thai government and they're claiming indirect expropriation and um, lack of fair and equitable treatment because the Thai government made that decision. So that's, uh, and they're also saying that they will claim for future lost profits. So potentially they could claim billions of dollars saying that if we had been able to operate the mine into the future, you know, we might have made billions of dollars in profits. Now, this is a very dubious concept in other contexts. Again, in the context of, ISDS tribunals, so tribunals are prepared to look at those sorts of claims. But um, if you, in other in other legal contexts, if you look at say um, uh, <clears throat> disputes adjudicated by other international courts, like the International Court of Justice, you couldn't get away with that sort of claim. Mm. And in the way that the claims are calculated and so on is quite inconsistent often comparing one case against another. Um, So um, there's been quite a lot written about the, first of all, the uh, 
inflated nature of these claims and the fact that they're based on dubious calculations. I mean, how can you really calculate what your future profits would be 20 years into the future? Yeah. The other interesting aspect is that in the last decade or so, um, as I said before, there's a, a sort of industry now of legal firms which run these cases um, and they, they're very expensive to run. The, the lawyers get paid a lot to run them. But also um, they have set up vehicles whereby people can actually make speculative investments in, um, in a claim. So this is what's called third-party funding. So a law firm will go to a company and say, um, you could make a claim about this and we will set up an investment vehicle, get people to invest in this investment vehicle, we'll claim billions of dollars, and then if we win the claim, the people who invested in it will get a percentage of the award. And, of course, that reduces the cost for the company Mm. to run the claim. It doesn't reduce the cost for governments. They still have to defend it. But, um, again, this is a very controversial aspect of the claims because it's really encouraging um, claims to get bigger and bigger because they're, they're, they've actually become a business in themselves. Yeah, well, I, I did want to talk about that third-party funding and this idea of the financialization of it and that transfer of money. But I suppose what I'm getting from this conversation is that these settlements are often very predatory towards developing countries. There's a huge amount of cash flow out through them and that they're not really seeking justice, if that makes sense, or trade economic justice. It's becoming more of a profit-driven vehicle. And I want to just get your final thoughts on, I suppose, recent attempts for reform, where the future of these agreements are heading, and if there is, an, if there is a possibility to change them or to challenge them. Yes, well, I think there's been a, a growing set of social movements that have been protesting about um, ISDS claims um, and um, particularly in developing countries but also in countries like Australia. There was a lot of outrage in Australia when the Philip Morris Tobacco Company sued the Australian government over our plain packaging Hmm. legislation. Um, And in Europe there's been a lot of outrage about energy companies suing um, governments over plans to phase out coal or phase out nuclear energy. Um, So there has been a people's movement, if you like, against these agreements. And that's been reflected in the fact that a number of governments, particularly developing country governments, have started withdrawing from them. So if you look at countries like South Africa, India, Indonesia, a number of Latin American countries. Brazil's never agreed to have ISDS in any of its trade agreements, for example, but also other um, countries have um, withdrawn from them in Latin America because they've been sued and it's so damaging. Mm. Um, The government of Ecuador was sued for, um, had an award against it of um, several billion dollars, which was almost equivalent to its education budget. Um, So... um, there are both people's movements and governments which are critical of these agreements. And that's led to a review of them by the two bodies which oversee the tribunals. One's organised 
um, through the UN and the other one's organised through the World Bank. Now, they don't actually appoint the arbitrators. They just provide a framework for the tribunals to operate in. The arbitrators are appointed by agreement between the parties. Um, so the investor appoints one, the government appoints one, and then there's a third one that's agreed between the two. But the kind of issues that have come up and and that people ha have argued for changes have been things like the lack of independence of the arbitrators, um, the fact that there's no precedence or appeals, but also just the whole um, unequal balance in the whole system whereby it's quite um, the system is set up so that a, a, an international corporation can sue a government, but a government can't say back to an international corporation, well, I want to have a claim against you because you've violated human rights or polluted the environment. Yeah. Uh, basically, there, um, I think there's kind of a couple of different tracks that are going on in this discussion. Mm. Um a lot of the corporations are saying we don't need to change it at all. It's okay the way it is. Um, a lot of the kind of legal academics and other people who look at it are saying, well, we could make some changes to the processes. You know, we could we could have a more independent set of judges running it or we could have, um, you know, precedents and appeals like you do in national court systems. Um but um, there's a lot of resistance to that from some governments and also from the most of the companies themselves don't favour that. And then there's others who say, well, we should simply not have this, these arrangements mm -hmm. in trade agreement. We don't really need them. So governments like um, Brazil and India and other developing countries, South Africa, have been saying, well, we could have an investment agreement which says we must treat investors fairly, but it could be... Um, enforced through a government-to-government -government dispute process, not, not through corporations being able to sue governments for billions of dollars. So um, that's the kind of debate that's going on now. And in the submission, the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade is actually reviewing Australia's bilateral investment agreements at the moment and our organisation, the Australian Fair Trade Investment um, Network, has made a submission saying that we go with the third option, that is that we should remove ISDS mm. from the agreements, from both the old bilateral investment agreements and the more recent trade agreements and uh, because they're just not needed in terms of the actual trade relationships. They just give a benefit, an extra benefit to corporations which they don't really need. Well, thank you so much for coming on and explaining, you know, investor state dispute settlements. I think it's one of those um, trade mechanisms that's very much written into the, the details, hidden in the details of free trade agreements. And it's, as you've said, the three case studies of, you know, PNG, Pakistan and Thailand, it's, it's wreaking havoc on these countries. Uh, so I'll definitely put a link to um, the Australian Fair Trade Investment Network's paper, but thank you very much for taking the time to come on and talk about this sort of this unspoken area within trade. Thank you very much for having me. It feels like deja vu. 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 It feels like.
messing around I'm gonna drive my own boat Cause you don't like this Coco I'm on a tightrope, no joke I was asleep, but now I'm woke You've been riding the waves, yeah You've been wasting your days, yeah I've been holding it though You better recognize now you're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, and up next we have a very, very exciting interview with the NGV. So in December 2021, the NGV will be launching a new exhibit called NGV Queer, and it'll be featuring over 300 artworks, all within the existing NGV collection. NGV Queer will be about exploring queer concepts as well as revealing the the queer stories that are often hidden within artworks as well. Joining us today to talk about the exhibit, we have two of the five curators, Angela Hessen and Meg Slater. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having us. So I wanted to ask first, the NGV Queer is about exploring the existing NGV collection, but now from a queer lens and perspective. What was that process like to revisit the same artworks within the NGV collection, but now with a queer perspective? Well, that's a really great question. Thank you, Robert. And I think that Ange, you know, and the rest of the curatorial team who aren't with us today, but um, they would all agree that It's been really extraordinary to be able to apply a queer lens to the NGV collection. You know, it really allows us to add another layer of interpretation, not only to the well-known works that our visitors have seen, you know, many times, but also to many other works that our audiences might not be as familiar with. And the research process has really been quite eye-opening and revealed the depth and breadth of the queer stories that we are able to tell through the NGV collection. And, you know, through our our research and with the help of many other colleagues as well, you know, this is such a wonderfully collaborative endeavour. We're really developing a checklist that spans media, timelines, geographies. It's incredibly broad. And I was was mentioning this to Ange yesterday that um, I think it's interesting because in many ways the research process involved in this project has kind of matched the elusiveness of the subject that we are dealing with. You know, we found ourselves going outside of conventional research methods and in doing so discover some really great gems in the collection and some queer stories that on face value might not appear to be there, which has been really exciting. Yeah, absolutely. And and as Meg says as well, I mean, the collaborative nature of this is really inherent to the whole project and we're we're really so lucky in the team that we're working with so they're the two of us and we come from so I'm from Australian art um, and Meg works usually on international exhibition projects but we also have Ted Gott who is our senior curator of international art and Miles Russell Cook who's our curator of indigenous art and Pip Wallace who works on contemporary art so with with all of those collective areas of expertise we have a really broad take on the NGV collection and it's been wonderful for us too I think to work outside areas that we usually curate and also I think just that experience particularly in lockdown of all working together on something that we all have such a kind of passionate interest in has just been a huge privilege it's really really an exciting project. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it sounds like the the exhibit's going to cover lots of different decades. You're saying many of the curators have expertise in different periods of art. I guess looking at the queer or the artwork through a queer lens through multiple decades and periods, and during that time, there's been varying degrees of acceptance of queer culture. 
as you've looked at the sort of uh, the, the spectrum of art over those many sort of decades and periods, how have you found that queer culture's representation in visual art has shifted throughout history? That's such an interesting question, actually. And it's, it's interesting in particular, I think, because we have a tendency, I think, as a society to assume that um, the history of, of movements like, you know, kind of a queer, queer rights movement or a women's rights movement, that this has been sort of a linear progression from more conservative, more conventional to more accepting. And for the case of, of many of the works that we're talking about here, that's, that's absolutely not been the trajectory. So if we look back to some of the earliest works in the exhibition, for example, um, the classical Greek vases, I mean, these date to a time when many of our current categories of sexual identity and the, the kinds of binaries that we impose today, many of which date from the, from the 19th century, these, of course, didn't exist in the classical period. So there was nothing unusual about same-sex desire in that time. And having same-sex relationships also didn't preclude having other kinds of relationships. So the insistence on kind of delineations and definitions is a relatively modern concept. It's also been interesting to think about the role of place as well as time in all of this. Um, For example, if we think about a period like the 1920s and 30s in Paris, which was a period of enormous freedom and possibility, and we have an absolute flourishing of queer art and culture in this time, Whereas if you look at London in the same time, this is a period of considerable censorship and oppression. We have Redcliffe Hall's Well of Loneliness being banned at the same time that there is a, an absolute flourishing of queer culture and cabaret culture in, in Paris and, um, and in Germany. So I think acknowledging the complexity of that history and the ways in which there is a kind of an ebb and a flow of acceptance and then also of marginalisation is, is really important. I just thought I'd mention that sort of beyond the artworks themselves, it's quite interesting to think about the title in relation to this question. You know, its meaning has changed over time. And I think it's a really great example of how the representation and the acceptance of queer lives and stories um, in not only in visual culture, but in society more broadly has, has sort of shifted so much throughout history. You know, in the 19th century, that term, originally meaning sort of strange and peculiar, was used to label queer people as deviant um, or sort of social outcasts and it has you know it's important and we acknowledge this it has a that word has a history of being used to attack and humiliate people who identify as queer and you know many people still don't identify with the term and it wasn't actually until the 1990s that it was reclaimed by LGBTIQA plus communities as you know a a statement of pride Um, and today it's really considered an umbrella term that's able to encompass a very broad range of identities. And while it's, you know, impossible for a single word to represent such a diverse community with such a rich history, we do think it's important to represent how language has changed over time and in turn how representation and acceptance of queer communities has changed as well. It's really interesting when you think, when you say, when you kind of zoom out and you look at variations over time and place and the way that it's ebbed and flowed, really kind of emphasizes the point that the rights in in a country like we have in Australia should not be taken for granted in the sense that things do change over time and celebrate and really fight for what rights and celebrations we can have today absolutely and we're talking about recent history too you know we're not we're not talking about 100 years ago even you know and and this is something you know there are 
in within living memory, it was, you know, within living memory of some of our people working on this show, it was actually illegal to be a gay person in Australia. <laughs> so this is, you know, I think that is an important thing to acknowledge how far we've come. And I think the other thing that we have to remember for is when we're looking at this show is that for many of the periods that we're representing in it, it actually wasn't possible at all for artists or their subjects to openly identify as queer. Mm. So in this way, this also kind of complicates the project. There are always going to be unknowns around identity. And this is why when we're looking at historical works, finding queerness can't always be about pinning down the identity of an artist or a subject. Often we're working in the realm of possibility rather than fact. It's a more speculative project. And, mm. and there is a sense that there are works that have connections to queer histories where we may never actually know the identity of, of an artist or, or their subject. In that whole process of exploring these artworks and sort of uncovering the narratives behind them, and as you say, there is a little bit of estimating and, and not having everything very sort of factual, I guess you could say. Um, many of these narratives haven't been visible or as visible in the past due to suppression or prejudice or discrimination. Is there a narrative that either or both of you are quite particularly drawn to that you've discovered through this whole process? I think I can speak for the the rest of the team in saying that, you know, we're all very drawn to this idea of what has been left out in the past, whether it's through oversight or intent um, in very different ways. And it's something that we're all really interested in being able to address in the exhibition, um, but also beyond the exhibition in programming, in writing that's done about the show and um, also through engagement as well and collaboration. Um, You know, I, for example, have a particular interest in queer histories during the mid to late 20th century, certainly the gay liberation movement. You know, this period was one of, now that we look back, one of great social and political advancement for the queer community. But this change was largely due to the activism of queer, you know, individuals and groups. And there was very little institutional recognition of the significance of the movement. And as a result, a lot of the Um, huge amount of artistic material that was generated during this period now really only exists in archives Um, you know like the like the fantastic Australian lesbian and gay archives here in Melbourne and this in itself you know is a gap that is um, existent in most major cultural institutions but it is one that is starting to be revisited and I mean a great example you know with the NGV in mind is um, the the recent acquisition of Gilbert Baker's rainbow flag which due to its legal status actually exists in the public domain. So it's actually impossible for this artwork to be owned. (laughs) Um, It's not owned by anyone, but the NGV and other institutions like MoMA in New York and the VNA in London have acquired this design in in a symbolic way to really pay due recognition to its significance within queer history. So I think unusual acquisitions like that are really interesting and will come up a lot with queer histories because of the nature in which they have been excluded in the past from institutional histories and are still um, in many cases. And it's such a beautiful story that as well, isn't it, Meg? I mean, that fact that it does exist in the public sphere, that you can't own it. I mean, that speaks so much to other aspects of the movement as well. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that's the thing is that That's why we focused on the idea of queer stories from the NGV as well, that it's not really just about the physical artwork itself in many cases. It's all of those kind of strains of history and interpretation and the afterlives of objects and the way that they've shaped 
people's lived experiences as well, which are so powerful. You know, there it's a um, it's a very kind of emotionally resonant thing to be working on, mm-hmm. um, and a very live thing as well. Like queer yeah. culture is always evolving, and the history exactly. is always evolving, and this is part of that history. Exactly, it's exactly it's absolutely caught up in ideas of transformation and metamorphosis, and I mean that's actually interesting too when you ask if there are particular periods or works that we're that we're drawn to for me I mean I sort of started out uh, in my career as a a fantasy act or a kind of late 19th century specialist and for me that's such a fascinating period in queer art and culture because it's coming out of a period in history when there are emergent theories of evolution metamorphosis the whole idea of identity is much more fluid and mutable in that period the sense of humans fixed identity in relation to um, gender and all kinds of things is is really on the table in a way that it wasn't previously and out of this you get the emergence of all kinds of art and literature that has its own sense of playfulness and possibility and suggestion that really undermine fixed notions of identity and within this figures like the dandy and the new woman emerge not always necessarily associated with same-sex desire, but certainly associated with that broader idea of queerness as about undermining fixed boundaries. And there's also a kind of a a decorative aesthetic that accompanies all of this. If we think about the look of Art Nouveau, that's all about, you know, one thing transforming into another, it speaks about queerness in such an interesting, fluid, decorative way. For me, that's really kind of fascinating. Mm. Through... Through that whole process of curating, or you're still create, curating and mm-hmm. queer, has your own understanding of queer culture shifted? That's a really good question. And I think to go back to the, the topic we were just discussing, I think it's continuing to shift. <laughs> I, I don't think, you know, any of us have, have arrived at, um, you know, full understanding yet, which is exactly as it should be, because I suppose that there isn't such a thing as fully knowing what queerness is. <laughs> um, but... I think one of the things that's been quite exciting for me is that I, my understanding of the NGV's collection has really changed and evolved. I wouldn't have thought that it would be possible for us to do this kind of show based just on collection work, certainly not a show on this scale. There's a lot about the collection that I think we've all been missing. Um, in part because obviously with very large national collections only a small number of them are are ever really on display at any one time and often the most um, loved and and established works are the ones that are privileged so you know this is giving us an opportunity to bring out a lot of lesser known works but I think the fact that there was so much that we were previously unaware of that we're now discovering um, also really demonstrates the subversive power of queer community in a way, the fact that all of these works actually do exist within our institutional history, in spite of um, periods of prejudice and bias, you know, we have still collected all of these works intentionally or not. And that's something which I think is really, it's a, a challenge to us to, to find all of those and to find the ways that queerness has kind of negotiated those prohibitions and those problems of the past. And I also, I mean, in terms of a personal thing that I have taken away from working on this exhibition so far, I've really enjoyed sort of expanding my understanding of the concept of queerness and learning more about its use as well, its potential as an interpretive framework sort of beyond gender and sexuality, um, its different applications. You know, the term represents endless possibilities when it's applied to an institutional collection and that's something that we are discovering every day. It really becomes a tool 
through which, you know, traditional interpretive frameworks can be broadened um, and in doing so you're able to bring these queer stories that have previously been overlooked or suppressed through to the surface, which is really exciting and, you know, will likely continue to inform how we um, contextualise artworks moving forward as well. Yeah, touching on that point you you raised before about the NGV collection and that process of how people have collected things over history and in the context of the time that was perhaps not, you know, a bit more controversial in that era for the political context. Mm-hmm. That's another big part of this exhibit is focusing on also what was included but then the absences of queer narratives within the existing NGV collection and noticing where there are omissions or gaps what started to become more observable when you looked at the NGV collection more holistically to find these gaps? Well, I mean, I think a good starting point that we all shared was that, you know, the prejudices and biases that have shaped this collection and any collection kind of need to be at the forefront with everything that you do and be openly acknowledged. Um, And we want to be very transparent about that and, you know, have really productive discussions as well throughout um, the exhibition. And I think that's one part that we're really excited about sharing with the public and hearing their thoughts. You know, it's impossible, I think, for um, any institutions, any institution to tell a completely comprehensive or complete queer history. And that's really why we decided to go with a thematic structure for this exhibition. You know, at the moment we have over 10 themes that we're thinking um, about sort of grouping artworks into and it's it, it provides a much richer sort of starting point than a chronological structure, I think. You know, through a thematic structure, we can really address what has been overlooked in the NGV's history, you know, 150 years, um, much more meaningfully and also demonstrate at the same time that, artworks about queer lives and identities have always been made, you know, throughout human history. So simultaneously be addressing what has been left out, but at the same time, what is there? Because there's just a huge amount that is actually there. Um, And that's a beautiful thing to discover. Yeah, and that's such an important point, Meg, too. And in terms of thinking about what is there, there's also the question of why it's there. You know, was the NGV, were these works collected as queer works? In the majority of cases, probably not, which is a really interesting story in itself. I mean, even works we have, for example, a really beautiful work in the exhibition is a painting by the Australian artist Agnes Goodsir, and it's a beautiful painting called The Letter. It's a portrait of her partner and her lover and her muse, um, Rachel Dunn, who was known as Cherry to her friends. And Dunn and Good Sir essentially lived as, a, as an out couple in Paris in the 1920s and 30s. You know, and as much as anybody could, they were absolutely living as a couple. And Dunn is the the main subject of Good Sir's work. You know, she's, she appears constantly in this domestic setting and Good Sir Uh, left one of these works to the NGV, this beautiful portrait of Dunn called The Letter. What's interesting is that when that work was acquired, I think, you know, the trustees were certainly not reading that as a lesbian work. It's It's a very beautiful, delicately modulated portrait. It looks almost like kind of Victorian sentimental or narrative painting. It's Um, You know, Rachel Dunn in that image could be a widow, she could be an abandoned lover, you know. But when you mine that history, you see that it is actually 
an incredibly intimate portrait of a same-sex relationship. And that's just kind of slipped into the collection in a way that was probably completely overlooked at the time, but we have this really beautiful document of that relationship. Um, and so, you know, and there are, there are many cases like that where we're finding that we actually possibly have fewer gaps than we might have thought, albeit not through intent <laughs> necessarily. I have to say, I could keep on asking so many questions. It's such an, it's, there's so much to, to explore and talk about with this. I guess we've got a year until the exhibit and it launches in December 2021. But what are you hoping that people will learn from the exhibit when they're able to visit next year? This is such a great question, but such a tricky one. I think so many things. <laughs> I think, you know, we really hope that people walk away from queer with an expanded understanding of the richness and the diversity of queer history and stories, particularly within the NGV's holdings. And we also hope that the exhibition will be, you know, particularly meaningful for the queer community. You know, I think to see queer ideas, identities and histories being explored through the NGV collection is such an incredible thing and it is important for queer people, you know, queer community to see themselves represented in cultural institutions. Absolutely. And I think, you know, for many of us, we think about um, earliest kind of identity forming experiences and for, you know, whatever art form you're drawn to, whether it's music or visual art or cinema you know seeing that kind of breadth of representation is incredibly meaningful um you know and particularly I think for young people we all have memories of kind of formative artistic experiences so if we can if we can do that in a you know broader and more inclusive and loving way then that's really that's going to be wonderful and I think the other thing that we have to remember is you know for all of this you know I think most people have some kind of connection to queer lives or queer histories, you know, whether they identify as queer or not, you know, this is actually about just telling a more complete story of people's romantic relationships, their families, friendships. It's about adding new layers of interpretation to the NGV's collection and and kind of telling a fuller picture for everyone. And, you know, hopefully at some point in the future, this kind of exhibition will feel quite redundant and quite unnecessary. (laughs) But for the moment, you know, we are dealing with a very long period of comparative invisibility. And it's, I think, you know, a really, it's a wonderful thing and a privilege for us if we can try and address that to some extent. I honestly, I can't wait 12 months. It's going to be too long to, to enjoy the exhibit. Angela Meg, thank you so much for coming on to speak with us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much, Robert. It's been a pleasure. If you were just tuning in, you were just listening to an interview with Angela Hessen and Meg Slater, two of the five curators for the upcoming NGV exhibition, NGV Queer. NGV Queer will be opening in December 2021. If you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, 
please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 111 500. That's 1300 111 500. Wellways supports 3CR. Okay, you're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, and it's time for Tram Thoughts. This week, we're talking about bikes. Not trams, bikes. Not trams, bikes. Another <laughs> beautiful public transport option. All right, so 2000, a 2009 background paper for the Australian government showed that Australia falls well behind best practice when it comes to bicycle usage. In some Western European countries, 10 to 20% of journeys are made by bicycle compared to Australia, which is less than 2%. It also showed that there was enormous scope, that's quoting the report, to increase the modal sharing of cycling, particularly for those 40% of Australians commuting less than 10 kilometres to their place of work or study, or making short local trips. Now, I reference that that, that is 2009, so a decade ago, um, because we haven't seen much bike policy emerge or much bike discourse over the last decade. There's been here and there, but it hasn't been huge in Australia. Meanwhile, outside of Australia, the global international community is increasingly supportive of bicycle, you know, uh, cultures, partially because bicycles are low carbon modes of transport that enhance urban quality and facilitate social cohesion. The UN recently came out and said they're also, you know, cheap, flexible, personal modes with with um, which people from, you know, different income backgrounds can really easily access. And so there's a great sort of opportunity, I suppose, for cities and countries to really invest in this as a means of getting around that's easy and affordable and sustainable. So I wanted to have a look today in our tram thoughts about what's kind of going on in Australia, really Victoria, and what we could do to potentially boost our cycle culture. So that's what we're going to be looking at today, Rob. So kicking us off, currently what's happened since that 2009 background paper is that each state has taken on different pledges to what they're going to do around bikes. And for Victoria, this is known as the Victorian Cycling Strategy from 2018 to 2028. So this is our most recent strategy. Now, I read through the strategy this morning and it shows that 60% of Victorians have an interest in bike riding, but are deterred by real or perceived safety concerns. So I wanted to kick off this conversation, Rob, where do you sit on using bikes? Are you one of these 60% of Victorians? <laughs> so I have ridden a bike in the past, but I've only ever... So, okay, I've moved house every year for the past six years. So I've lived in a lot of different places and had a lot of different <laughs> routes to get to uni or to get to work. But only for one year did I ever feel safe cycling to uni. And that's because it was pretty much across on a bike lane the entire way and a separated bike lane off the road or on a very, very quiet road. Mm. Besides that, every other route has been a little bit more dangerous for my liking. And so I'm quite sensitive to this because I grew up in Sydney and I've known quite a few people to have quite tragic accidents from cycling Mm. and very long-term injuries. And so I've always had that in the back of my mind when I go cycling. So I am definitely in that cautious 60%. 
Absolutely. I find myself the same. So I'm currently, you, you know, using your public trams, your trams, your, your trains, that sort of thing. But I'd really love to get more into bikes. However, living in the southeast suburbs, I feel suburbs are a bit of a weird one when it comes to bikes. You're either in a suburb that has a lot of bicycle infrastructure through connected pathways or you're one like me near Burwood Highway where you wouldn't want to risk it <laughs> on a good day. <laughs> um, so it's sort of this idea – this idea of like there's a burgeoning interest in a lot of Victorians to pick up this technology, but as evident from both of us, there's a lot of fear around it, which is quite substance. Um, and looking at the reasons for this, like especially in Victoria, um, we've got a, quite a few detractors. So the first off, I think, which needs to go mentioned is actually there's a lot of, um, it's, it's very dangerous, as you said. The Australian Roads Death Database from 1989 to 2018 found that, you know, over the last 30 years, 49,000 people have been killed in road accidents. And basically cyclist deaths account for 2.64% of that, which doesn't sound like too much, but it means that basically 44 lives have been lost every year due to cycling accidents, which is a massive tragedy. So there's a very, very real dangerous or safety element. There's also, in Victoria especially, hefty fines. So there's a hefty punitive detractor. You know, um, you you can be charged $155 for failing to signal. And for driving too close behind a moving vehicle, you can get fined $233. Now, this might sound not, you know, fairly common sense. However, some of these things are harder to judge in application. And bicyclists can be very harshly fined for it. We then have more sort of... I suppose Victoria general issues. A few of the issues that bike communities have brought up is this idea of urban sprawl and car centrism within our urban design and the fact that bike spaces are not really given a much designated single space. They're much more like pushed onto the road. And also in Victoria, the idea of helmet wearing. Now, Victoria actually was the first state to introduce mandatory helmet laws in 1990. And although people had been wearing helmets up until this point, there's been a large argument from the Victorian bicycle community since 1990 that this has actually lowered the amount of people engaging with bicycle technology. Bicycle technology. Bicycles. Cycling. Um, Now, of course, the reason why we have the bicycle helmet laws is under a safety justification, and studies have shown that bicycle helmets do reduce the serious head injury um, statistic. However, it remains kind of this controversial thing. And and subsequent studies have shown that Victorians have actually dropped off of using bicycles post this law. Now, correlation is not exactly causation. There's a lot more, you know, cars have increased, roads have increased. But it's definitely one of those issues which is kind of confuddling, you know, or, or an impacting factor on this. Those are the main dissuaders. Rob, can you think, apart from these safety concerns, is there anything else that you really think pushes people out of using bikes as a practice in the modern, I suppose, in the modern 21st? Um, I mean, it's becoming less of an issue now, but a lot of new buildings and developments are very strong in encouraging end-of-trip facilities, so making sure there are showers at the end if you need to sort of freshen up or proper bike storage. And while in the past there's been a barrier I think over time that is becoming less and less of a barrier. So that's good to see. Um, but I think, as you say, safety is probably the biggest issue. And in some ways also when you come across intersections, so I'm one of these people that whenever I go for a new bike route, I'll always like Google street view it to see if there's any nasty intersections. And so I think it's this, uh, 
not being confident enough in the broader cycling network to feel that, okay, wherever I go, mm. it'll work out because that's not always the case. And sometimes you just, your lane disappears and you're in a freeway. And so I guess the fact that there is that fear implies that that exists within the network and that's perhaps a barrier. Absolutely. And I mean, this is kind of echoed if we think about solutions and policies addresses. This is somewhat echoed in the Victoria Cycling Strategy, which calls for investing in safer, lower stress and better connected bicycle networks. It also prioritizes strategic cycling corridors. Um, And we have seen this somewhat um, invested in and developed over the last two years. Uh, Melbourne's Lord Mayor has actually um, committed to developing 44 kilometres of extra cycling lanes over the next four years, and there have been ones put in local councils. However, a lot of them do remain um, what we call cycle lanes, which are the dotted, you know, sort of cyclists here on main roads. And these are seen as not the best practice. The best practice is, as you can imagine, cycle paths and cycleways, designated barriered divisions between cars and bicycles. Cycle lanes are usually prioritised by councils and state because they are cheaper and much easier to do with existing infrastructure. And take less space as well. And take less space. However, they also remain a lot of the reasons why cyclists like you and I don't participate on the roads. There's also a rather interesting aspect here with the Victorian cycling strategy where they talk about making cycling a more inclusive experience. So at the moment, your dominant cycle rider is a man 45 going to work or you know on his off day i suppose also known as a mammal a middle-aged men in lycra thank you thank you for that contribution (laughs) um and the the strategy talks about you know what are possible ways that we can get women children and seniors more into uh into into bicycling so i wanted to bring up a few maybe ideas that we can start to discuss and also post-covid some of the opportunities that are starting to emerge. So the first one that the official strategy suggests is 20-minute um, communities, the idea of moving urban design so it's all accessible within 20 minutes of walking or cycling. Uh, and this would be – this is a drastic urban design thing that Victorian government is chasing also, you know, um, for decarbonisation efforts and stuff like that. But it's, it's a reshuffling of our communities to make it a lot more centric and a lot more accessible. There's also this sort of vago safety that they refer to, you know, they talk about um, reducing maybe road speeds or the uh, increase of safe vehicles. So, you know, driver assistance technologies, which is a bit, I don't know, I, I'm not so sold. It sounds like car centrism to me, but that's also some of the stuff that they've got already out there. Moving over to COVID, um, what we've seen globally is actually an increase in uh, picking up of biking around the world, as well as Australia. And we've seen cities actually adapt to this. So in Toronto and London, um, they've actually closed roads for cars and made safer streets safer for cyclists and pedestrians. So they've closed off whole roads so cyclists can use them. They've constructed separate bike lanes and connected existing bike works. Um, China has dramatically increased in bike sharing systems. We've also seen local governments um, carving out pop-up bike lanes in many cities. Brussels has lowered speed limits, as I said before. And Paris has worked on subsidized e-bike purchases and reimbursed bike repairs. So these are all sort of like temporary stuff that we've seen. We've also seen Barcelona more long-term move to the superblock concept, which is pulling off whole parts of the city to just being public, you know, pedestrian and cycle areas. Rob, I kind of wanted to get your opinions. What incentives do you think here might work for you or might pique your interest or get you more likely to cycle again? 
For me, I'm really favoring the idea of subsidized bike purchases and bike repairs because I know there's a lot of bikes around the suburbs where like, you know, you've got them in your shed and they're flat tires or whatever like that. And a lot of people don't know how to use their bikes at all or like what they need. So I'm thinking maybe a bike shed scenario where you can go down to your local community center, refit out your bike, maybe, you know, talk to some passionate experts. That might be something that could build this culture. This might be a little bit corny, but I don't know, like, like I'm a comfortable cyclist, but like cycling classes for how to ride in the city, maybe mm. just like a few hours of just knowing some good practices of, okay, this is the best way to indicate. This is the best way to change lanes. Just some basic skill building to more be able to navigate a city, I think would actually really help with my confidence. I like that. I like the idea also, we already have that bike share system in the city, but it's quite expensive, you know, to book out a bike and then take it round. I think it'd be really cool if you could have almost like a buddy system. So maybe you could sign yourself up for a little class where someone would show you around Melbourne on a bike mm-hmm. and really, you know, show you what are the best corridors to use and or or in your local area, I suppose, because we don't want to make this just Melbourne centric, like wider suburbs. Mm. That might really help with confidence. You know, motorcyclists do it already when they're learners. That That might be an area i'm also wondering on this more inclusive side of thing and getting women seniors and kids how could we maybe be a bit more proactive in shaping that culture you know um do you think maybe school which maybe should should we have school programs or should we have you know some people have called for the removal of mandatory helmet wearing and instead a high endorsed culture of helmet wearing what's your thoughts around that i think actually for me i uh, towards more the side of wearing helmet and I guess I kind of would say the equivalent is like wearing masks in coronavirus mm. it's a very simple way to improve public health quite drastically but I mean those shortfalls you say about barriers of people taking up cycling potentially because of the helmets could be subsidized by subsidized helmets or free helmets or things like that mm. so that doesn't become as much of a barrier but I do personally think and i'm happy for people to to challenge me on this but i think it's such a simple way to make things safe at a point where cars are still the predominant form of transport and bikes aren't it's different in a place say like amsterdam where more people there's more bikes and cars and more more bikes and people and Mm. so there's kind of a mass movement that makes it safe but i don't think we're quite there yet in australia and so i don't think we can quite remove helmets just yet Look, building on that idea, I think like obviously within these things, urban design solutions are a big thing. 20-minute neighbourhoods are very exciting. Uh, But you're right, we're not quite there yet. And I actually really like this idea of having like a helmet drop-off or or pick-up box, like in your local councils, maybe in your local public schools, in different community share points where you could go, ah, pick up a helmet. And that way it's certified and, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe you could have these community outlets where people could get the right helmet because that is also important. Mm -hmm. Um, But that might be a really great way of getting people to kind of pick it up because I know a lot of people who don't wear them is because they don't have the helmets, they haven't bought the right helmet or, you know, that, that, that might that might be a good solution. Yeah. I'm also wondering with older people and, you know, getting women and children to do, that one's also a interesting campaign. And I, I think that remains an unanswered question for Victoria is how we get, you know, move away from the men in Lycra <laughs> image. <laughs> but anyway, that's roughly my triumphals today, basically bikes, 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 and how we can make more bikes um, stronger in Victoria 
If you are interested in this conversation, a show you should check out from 3CR is definitely City Limits, which you're in luck, comes up at nine o'clock today on a Wednesday. And they do explore all issues around public transport. Um, and I'm sure, sure, I can ask Kevin to bring in bikes at some point. So that would be my recommendation. But yeah, thanks for joining us on Transports. Ding, ding. up to the end of our show for 3CR Wednesday Breakfast this week, but just before we were having a wonderful tram thought, not about trams, but about bikes. About bikes. About bikes and how we can increase bike uptake and how we can overcome the fears a lot of us have, or apprehensions I should say, around bikes, you know, community programs, increased urban design, all of these solutions. Uh, COVID's opened up a great opportunity to look at bikes. So, yep, that's what we were chatting about. And before then, we had an interview with the NGV about some amazing, about an amazing exhibition coming up called NGV Queer. So we spoke with some of the curators about what it's been like to curate the exhibition and how they've now sort of started to see the NGV collection a lot more differently having viewed the artwork through a queer perspective and lens and earlier on in the show we kicked it off with dr patricia ronald from the australia fair trade and investment network with a rather important unreported story which is multinational corporations suing developing countries through free trade mechanisms known as investor state dispute settlements and how lopsided these are um, and how predatory they are towards developing countries in particular um, these are private businesses, once again, extracting huge amounts of wealth from developing governments and getting away with it through privatized courts. So big conversation there at the start of the show. And thanks very much to Earth Matter, Earth Matters, who are before us. And now stick around for Stick Together. Woohoo. See you later. See you later. <laughs> 